0: of our, like a systematic section, if you want to call it that. Um, We're going to be doing the last, these two chapters here, one on eschatological characters and then one titled just the Eschatological Apocalypse, which of course is just the word used to describe the book of Revelation. Um, And so we're going to be talking about those characters and then kind of walking a little bit through Revelation, just kind of the structure of it as a book and what it's kind of talking about there. Um, Again, uh, and i feel like i say this every time but because of the nature of, of how quickly we're going through we're going to be hitting some things uh some things very briefly on um, some things that we could go into more detail um and but of course gentry does go into great detail in the book there so if you're following along the book um, i'm hitting some of the highlights here but uh, you can see uh kind of his more fleshed out arguments on some of these uh positions that he gives as far as why he believes this character to be this person or why he believes the, the structure of revelation to be um, as he claims so but before we uh, get started let me pray for us and then we will uh, get our course started here today Your heavenly father we are so thankful for uh, this revelation that you do give us uh, Lord you do uh, not give this to us needlessly but you give it to us for our comfort uh, for our blessing uh, that we might better understand you and better understand how Uh, we are to live in this world uh, as we uh, are now your soldiers those who follow you um, with our whole hearts those who have been saved and redeemed by you uh, and now can do those good works that have uh, been predestined for us beforehand and so lord we are so thankful for that i pray that we would love each other well that we would love you with our whole hearts it's in christ that we pray these things amen all right well let's start here with the eschatological characters um, and He walks through several of the big names of uh, that we are familiar with uh, these people these characters that are in the apocalypse or the end times and who they are um, and he starts out with the prophet Elijah the prophet Elijah the prophet Elijah is someone that we see in the Gospels mentioned all of the time it's probably the prophet that the Jews would have been uh, considered to be one of the greatest prophets excepting um, uh, maybe Moses. Um, and the the one that they considered uh, to come you see this all the time right whenever we talk about john the baptist people will say oh is this elijah coming again and then when we come to jesus people even ask is this um, elijah coming again and why would they think that why on earth would they think that elijah is coming back well that we have to turn to uh, the last book of the old testament and we might see a reason for that so let's turn to malachi chapter 4 Malachi chapter 4, and can someone read verse 5 for us? Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. Yeah. Yeah. Behold, I will
1: send you Elijah the
0: prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Very good. Simple as that, right? There is, an, Elijah is going to come. The, the Lord is going to send him before that great and awesome day of the Lord um, comes. Whatever that means. We talked about, of course, what the day of the Lord uh, means or can signify. Uh, of course, it signifies the day of judgment. There is judgment coming on the day of the Lord. This can be referring to the uh, the great eschatological day of judgment, or it can also be referring to times of particular judgment. Uh, we see, we saw throughout the Old Testament how it can mean both of those things. So before the day of the Lord comes, we see that Elijah the prophet is coming. Now, who is Elijah? Who fulfills this prophecy? Um, and this is a, an interesting question to ask because we turn to Matthew 17. And we see that this question is pretty directly answered for us. So can someone read Matthew chapter 17 and read verses 10 through 13? Get that. And his
2: disciples asked him, saying, Why then did the scribes
1: say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the
0: Baptist. So who is Elijah? John the Baptist. Baptist. Seems pretty straightforward. It's not someone that is... Elijah is not going to come um, sometime in the future during the, the end times. Uh, He already came christ clearly said he already came and who and the disciples said and we realized he was talking about john the baptist Um, And so there is a some rebuttal to this um, And that rebuttal comes in the uh, the verse that was a few chapters prior to this um, And it has to do with what the jews did in response to um, to elijah Because the many dispensationalists will agree that yes, that John came in the spirit of Elijah, that he seems to have that similar spirit, that similar boldness. Um, But then they go to Matthew chapter 11 and they go down to chapter or to verse 14 that I'll read briefly for us that says, and if you are willing to accept it, this is Christ speaking to the Jews. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And they read this as a conditional statement and they will say well did he receive or did they receive him as Elijah and the answer to that question is no they did not and if they did not receive him then he could have been Elijah but he is not because the Jews failed to receive him as such um, and this uh, for the dispensationalist works within their paradigm within their, their system right I mean in the same way that they could have received Christ in his kingdom and the kingdom would have come. In the dispensationalist system, the kingdom has not come because they did not receive Christ as their king. And therefore, we're now in that delayed period until the millennium uh, to come. Uh, So this actually kind of parallels the way that they think this through. Um, But I would argue argue, and Gentry argues as well um, that that verse there in 17 makes it abundantly clear and that the disciples realize that Christ was still speaking of Elijah as being uh, or as John the Baptist as being Elijah um in Matthew. And that's two. Uh we don't we don't see the, the, this in the same light. Whenever there is something that God does, he does not wait until um there is some kind of uh, acceptance by the people, right? He doesn't God doesn't say I'm going to bring my kingdom and the people say, "Oh no, we don't want your kingdom." And God says, "Oh, okay. Never mind then. I'm not going to mention my kingdom." That's not the way that God seems to operate throughout the entirety of the scriptures, right? When God came to Israel, he did not ask them, "Wait uh i i'm going to bring it to a land and they say oh no we don't want the land uh he know he goes in there and he saves them initially right even whenever a whole generation says oh no we don't want the land he says well i'm going to punish you for your disobedience and then i'm going to bring your children into the land he's still he is always the one who is proactive in his uh in his outworking of redemptive history right he is the one who is saving his people um, he is the one who is ushering in the kingdom and so Gentry argues that very clearly we see uh, the prophet Elijah, who is coming first uh, as the kingdom is being uh, inaugurated. Uh, Elijah came um, as John the Baptist, right? Not in some kind of weird reincarnation kind of thing. No, this is the, uh, that John the Baptist is acting as, uh, as Elijah did, right? He is proclaiming the way, he is acting in great boldness and speaking, uh, speaking the truth of God's word to those that are corrupting it. Um, namely the Pharisees. Then, though, we get to the more controversial figure, and that is the character of the Antichrist. The Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist? Well, the there are many answers, of course, given to this question. Gentry opens up his, his discussion of the Antichrist by just showing how so many people have... Guess or or deliberated who the Antichrist could possibly be. He says, "Yeah, that's the that's the correct answer. Good job, Phil." Um, (laughs) The um, there's he he even shows that there were many uh, in the 1980s who were speculating that uh, uh, Gorbachev was the Antichrist. Of course, we know that it's definitely not the case, as he was the one that actually ushered in the fall of the USSR. He didn't actually push it forward. Um, And so but just uh, to put all things in perspective many many people have speculated Oh, the end times must be coming because this character looks to be the Antichrist or this character looks to be the Antichrist But let me ask you this question How many times is the Antichrist mentioned? In the Bible just off the top of your head if you could guess It's more than one it's more than three (laughs) It's four yes, that's right and are any of those references in the book of Revelation? No. No, they're not. They are only in a couple of books, First John and Second John. So let's look at first John and Second John and see what he has to say about the Antichrist. Can someone read first John two eighteen for us? First John two eighteen. Mm-hmm. Very good. So what do we see already here It seems to maybe run counter to a common narrative about the antichrist? There's a lot of them. There's, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. there's multiple.
1: It seems like it's grouping every all the Antichrist under the. Antichrist.
0: Yeah, there seems to be one who is the Antichrist. He says, and I tell you, there are many, right? So there is kind of this juxtaposition between the two. Um, and one one key thing that we see here as well, is the Antichrist something that's happening way in the future? No. He, this many have already come, which is an interesting statement. Let's turn then to the second reference, which is just the page over in 2.22. Can someone read 2.22 for us?
2: Who is a liar? First John, who yeah. denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist. who denies the Father and the Son.
0: Mm-hmm. So we see a characteristic of the Antichrist. He is one who denies the Father and the Son. He is a blatant liar. Um, there is a, a, a difference here, I, I would say, that there is... Something we would say, like we wouldn't call someone who is a pagan who has never heard the gospel a, a liar. Yes, we know that they, they, Romans 1 tells us they know who God is and they are denying uh, his power, right? We're not saying that they don't know who God is. Uh, but there seems to be, using that term liar seems to be very specific as this person ought to know, um, but they deny the Father and they deny Christ. So that seems to be an added impetus into what, what an antichrist is, right? And then let's look at chapter 4 of verse John. Three of the four references are in the same book. Uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Can someone grab four three for
1: us? And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already
0: very good so he's very he's reiterating much of what he's already said right he is already here and that all those that do not confess jesus as lord um they have the spirit of the antichrist and then finally let's move to second john can someone read second john verse 7 So there we go there's all four references in the entirety of scripture for the antichrist so what does this then play into the idea that there is a great antichrist who is going to rise up to inaugurate in the great tribulation or um, the, the end times this doesn't seem to to indicate that um, some will say, and some have tried to argue that the antichrist, antichrist being talked about by John, uh, are actually referring to uh, the beast, that the beast and the antichrist. We'll talk about the beast here in a second. Um, that they're the same person, um, but that seems to be quite kind of a stretch. Namely, because who wrote the Book of Revelation? John, and who wrote First and Second and Third John? John did. So if he, if they bo- he, if he wrote both of these books. If he's making reference to the Antichrist four times in these very short books, and he's also the one that is going to reference the beast, why does he not make that connection if he's the same author? Um, which is a, an interesting uh, argument to make about why, why it, can't really, it wouldn't really make sense uh, for the beast uh, and the Antichrist to be the same person. Uh, now, he doesn't go into it as much, but, but Phil did bring it up. Of course, the reformers, uh, who did they think? The antichrist was
2: 1647 game the Pope. the Pope
0: yes they believe the Pope was the antichrist uh, which does seem to uh, make sense with what we see of the antichrist at the very least uh, and who what the antichrist is like right the Pope does set himself up and call himself the, the victor the vicar of uh, of Christ he can speak on behalf of Christ in his own mind um, and he has deceived many many people um, he is a, a liar. And so there, those all seem to, uh, to line up, uh, though, of course, there is many schools of thought as to that. There are some that take a just very much more general approach. Obviously, it does say that they, there have been antichrists already in these passages, and, and the pope is not around yet. Um, and so there, there's uh, some conjecture, some debate as to who the antichrist or antichrists are. And uh, it is the pope that, that already does. That is a plurality. Right? There are multiple popes. There have been many, many popes. Um, and so that would, that would line up as well but just wanted to say that's not a, a distinctive of postmillennial thought there is many in postmillennial thought that, that think it is the Pope or think it, uh, or think otherwise uh, but regardless the postmillennial distinctive is this that there are antichrist or antichrists that exist before the end times indeed they've already come right there is not this anticipation of this great figure that rises up and then we know the end times is upon us um, and so that—that uh, that is Gentry's summation of the Antichrist. Well, that moves us to the Beast, the Great Beast. So let's turn to Revelation 11. Who is the Beast? Is it interesting in Revelation? Can someone read Revelation 11: 7? we see this beast that is raising being raised out of the pit who is this beast well some will say it is a figure that is to rise very if, especially if, if you connect the Antichrist with the beast um, here mentioned and the beast is mentioned and spoken of in Revelation 11 and then later in Revelation 13 uh, there but what we see here and what Gentry argues, I think is a a fairly solid argument that the beast, like other characters throughout the scripture, can either have a specific reference, as it is a person, or it can have a general or a generic reference. And how does he back up this claim? Uh, Because he says, well, if the specific person could be a king, a king of many times represents the country or the kingdom that he reigns. Um, right, in the same way that Christ is spoken of, but Christ is also spoken of in reference to His body. He is, He represents His body, and His body, the Church, just as Adam represents those who are in Adam. Um, this is more covenantal language, right? Thinking in a federal or a covenantal mindset, and so He says at times, it does seem uh, that the beast is being spoken of. It's being spoken of a kingdom, and who is that great kingdom? He's going to argue it is the kingdom. Or the kingdoms under Roman rule um, and that beast uh, many times has a specific reference and then that must be that which is ruling over the kingdoms of Rome that is Caesar um, and of course who is the great uh, deceiver the great the one that was the great persecutor the first persecutor um, who was a Caesar Nero. Nero exactly and so he makes the argument and he starts from going to chapter 13. And if someone could read chapter 13, verse 18 for
1: us. This calls for wisdom. But the one who is understanding calculates the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666.
0: His number is 666. Very uh, well-known verse. But it's interesting the way that he opens that up, right? He says, let the man have wisdom. Calculate the number, for this number is a man. And so he's drawing our attention to it, and he's saying that there has to be an amount of wisdom, right? It's not something that's immediately clear. He takes wisdom, but he tells people to calculate it and expects that his writer, or his author, or not writer or author, his readers, um, should know. that They should know what he's speaking of when he says 666. Six, six. So what could he, what on earth could he be referring to? Well, I will not bore you with the long details of how Hebraic numbering um, with letters works. The Hebrews, in their old, uh, their, the way that they wrote their language, uh, they didn't actually have symbols for numbers the way that we do. Um, they used their alphabet to represent numbers. It's very similar, of course, to the way that that Rome did, right? Rome also used their own lettering system to use what we call Roman numerals, right? It was later, um, in the Middle Ages, that we actually started to develop a system for having separate symbols for numbers. And so, in, yes? The book of Revelation wasn't
1: written in Hebrew. It It was not. It was written in Hebrew. What? Just the number here is going to be. Well,
0: this is where he's writing to. Those that at least would have some familiarity with uh, Hebrew and so if you transliterated the Greek it is written in Greek or at least to our knowledge uh, It was it was written uh, that what this part wasn't ever in Hebrew um, We don't have any manuscripts that indicate that but if you transliterated the Greek Into Hebrew, right if you took the Greek symbols and you change them into the Hebrew symbols then you have the Hebrew letters that would then if you took the Hebrew lettering of Nero of nero nero caesar right nero kaiser if you took how hebrews would have Spelled that and if you took the numeric values of each one of those letters and how you spell Caesar's name nero caesar's name in hebrew it would add up to six hundred and sixty six and so This does seem to fit quite nicely with the way that john is speaking here as he does say let the one who has wisdom calculate the number and i tell you this number is a man right so he's already giving you the uh the clue i'm talking about a person i'm not going to tell you who the person is but if you can calculate you'll know it's the wise should know the wise should understand um, and so he gives this number six 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 and so then this is why um the postmillennial, the preterist uh line of thought um is is pretty set on that Nero is the one being referred to as the beast. And that does seem to, to line up with what we know about the beast here in Revelation. What does the beast do? He, he, he rails against uh, the people of God. He persecutes them. Nero is the first Caesar uh, to enact great persecution upon uh, the Christians, which we talked about earlier. He, he did so to use them as a scapegoat. And he uh, not only killed them, but he, he enacted great torture uh, upon them. Um, as he was of course a very beastly kind of character he wasn't only beastly to Christians uh, the whole city of Rome knew him to be uh, just barbarous in the way that he acted and behaved he was very conniving Um, we'll have to talk about a little bit of his conniving when we get to 2nd Thessalonians uh, here later Um, but this does seem to indicate that it is Nero which would then uh, change the timeline because this puts it back there in the early centuries of the church there Yes, sir.
2: So there are some who, in the Antichrist debate, right? Mm -hmm. Some would say it's the opposite of both. Mm -hmm. Some would say it's Nero. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Some would say Nero is the Antichrist, right? Right. So if the Antichrist and the beast are separate, right? Right. opposite. Then what is either Gentry's argument, if if Nero, which I'm I'm not arguing that... With about Nero and the beast, but if Nero's the beast, mm-hmm. then what does that necessitate? I mean, if that takes him out of the equation for the antichrist debate, mm-hmm. um, what do what would some? Do you are you aware of what others would say or majority opinions would be? If Nero's not the antichrist and he is the beast, then where does that lead the antichrist discussion apart from? Nero?
0: So the way that Gentry frames it, it's, I don't—he doesn't really ever speak to Nero perhaps being the Antichrist. I think because he draws that line of separation pretty early, um, his his speculation is that antichrists are, are plural; um, they are multiple, and therefore that we see them uh, not necessarily in, in Nero. He's going to be looking more at the ways that the, the Jews were persecuting the, uh, uh, the the Christians in the early days. Um, especially since he has this, uh, this uh, his his notion is that the antichrists are, are liars and therefore they should know better. So this wouldn't be referring to a Roman coming in from outside. This is someone, a Jew who knows the prophecies, who knows what's going on and they still reject Christ and then they persecute uh, the Christians because of that. Um, and so this would, I think, this is where gentry would line up and then someone who takes a, a more reformation standpoint could say the same thing about a pope right? who has the scriptures who knows better who should know uh, better and yet still lifts himself up and, uh, and pretends to play the judge when he ought not um, and so I, I think that's, that's kind of where those, those arguments would lie when there's a separation there between the beast If the beast is, is really a specific um, instance or person um, in, in Nero who is a pagan from the outside persecuting the church
1: I mean, you're
0: he could be yes, yes. That, that that could be as well. Gentry doesn't speak to to that connection necessarily, um, but yes, I think that's, that's definitely a possibility here um, as well. Um, and there is the the interesting added uh, for those who know classical Roman history. Um, we we see that the beast has how many heads does the beast? Have. Does anyone call off the top of their head? Seven. seven. He has seven heads. Um, this lines up then. Does anyone know um, what um, is the city of seven hills? The city, the eternal city of Rome. That's right. Sitting there on the tiber situated between seven hills. And that's referred to all over classical literature. Um, and so uh, Gentry calls us to that connection as well. That this beast with seven heads um, does seem to be indicating Rome. Yes, sir.
1: So, Romans thirteen mentions
0: two beasts. Revelation thirteen, yes. Reve- Reve- I just it 13. <laughs> yeah.
1: Revelation thirteen talks about two beasts. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's the second one. Is there? Is there? Are there two, or speaking to one? Are they talking about two different
0: things? He he does believe they're talking about two, and he the is. second one does seem to be one that uh, uh, is subservient to the first. So,
1: the second one is mm-hmm. the one who has the mark.
0: Yes, uh, we are going. The first one is the one
1: that you're talking about. And it's the second one. Yes. It the second
0: one only has two heads, I believe. And it, has, it it's it's in it's inservient to the first. And Gentry's uh, conclusion in, in that argument is that the second one's actually referring to the Jews living there in Jerusalem that are persecuting the church directly, that are claiming power because they are acting on behest of uh, Caesar, which, which lines up with the way that they, they speak many times, when they say, oh, well, they call Christ God, so they're saying that Caesar isn't God, and, and, and he's saying, well, that kind of lines up with the way the rulers there in uh, in, in Jerusalem and in, and in Judea um, are persecuting the Christians, um, and that's who he believes the, the second beast to be. Um, yes? So,
2: the beast, it sounds like you're saying, is mm-hmm. a particular person <coughs>
0: more right there's more so generic the beast is, like, the beast is a particular mean. time yes yeah and because of that verse there that says and here's his number uh, it seems to be very specific right not talking about um, though there, though sometimes it seems to be talking about the, the nation when she rules yeah, that's what I was to say. Is The Number seems to only be like because he says this is a man, right? He doesn't say this is a nation, this is a kingdom. He seems let the man who has wisdom see that it is a man. So that he does says seem, that on
1: the second one though.
0: He does? Would you where are you reading?
1: Revelation thirteen. Mm-hmm. Verses
0: eleven through eighteen talking about like the second beast. That's where it talks about the man. True. Um, he does uh he does speak to the, the fact that, uh, that it could be speaking of those that are ruling there in Judea like, like a Herod figure um, who does put himself up as well um, as a, a ruler. And we know that he was, uh, he was struck down as well um, in, in the book of Acts pretty early on. Um, and he would actually line up quite well with the second beast because he and his, his descendants, right, uh, because the, Her- the Herodic family claimed Judaistic uh, lineage. Um, but they were really puppets for rome um and they were being they were ruling in place of rome
2: that's a gentry view though isn't it the Is that gentry old, that view too? Yeah, yeah i believe so yeah, so. yeah Heri- i don't yeah. know if it was in this book but i know he says i mean that's a common amongst
0: am right so I mean, that's what i believe yeah herod and and caesar kind of being first and second beasts there mm-hmm. and both of them being being kings and being rulers being called kings specifically having the covenantal Ties to to nations that are for are the particular nations that revelation is is focused on um, because that really kind of brings into relief the way that that John is writing and the and the theme of revelation which is uh, you church are being persecuted, and who's persecuting you well, firstly, the Jews are persecuting you um, and then secondly and later the Romans are persecuting you and don't worry, church, because God is still in control God is the one who will Bring judgment both upon the Jews and upon the Romans uh, subsequently because of this persecution that you're experiencing um, and that you have no need to fear because of the God whom you serve. And it's kind of like a, a pulling back, right? The, the church is, is in great persecution and great peril, and John kind of pulls the curtain back and says, see, look, the Christ whom you worship, uh, he's still on the throne, and look what's going to happen, right? It's, it's all going to be all right. Um, there's great comfort, and this is why, he then speaks of uh, this this language that says things are happening they're going to happen soon, they're going to happen in this generation um, and so there's this uh, kind of urgency <laughs> to the way that, that John writes uh, in the book of Revelation so it reminds me of history of Herod so you have Herod that killed all the babies right, that's not the Herod that he, right, he dies, yes mm-hmm. and then the other Herod mm-hmm. is figuring back and forth to Pilate at the time of his
2: existence, right, and that's yeah. God brought, God brought his guts. Yes.
0: Which one? That's First the one and second, second one. one. Yeah, I wouldn't say that these. Now they're both. They're related. I believe the second one is either his son or his grandson. Uh, and I, I have to remember which. but they? The question is, if he That's gonna be the second the second herein. yes but I believe he even at, he would have had a son as well that would have been that would have ruled in his place afterwards as well um, could have even been referring to the son of the one that was killed um, the Agrippa line the, the the dynasty that Agrippa had uh, was was for a significant portion of the time ruling there in Judea as a puppet king um, so yeah I think that it's a and of course this is this is us trying. Right. Well, the one that... Yeah, it wouldn't have been him yet yeah, because he was the one that died then later in Acts. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so it's his son most likely that's being spoken of here. Or whoever is ruling there in, in Judea. This would line up a lot just because of his connection to the temple um, and his connection to the Jewish people trying to claim that uh, that lineage, though, of course, he is really uh, a puppet king. But so what happened to him in the destruction of Jerusalem? Did he still continue? Did that line continue No, after the destruction of Jerusalem it's all the Jewish state becomes a non-existent and Palestine is directly ruled by Rome so after that,
2: that. Longer, the line
0: right exactly and we so what we're seeing here and and the dates that, that Gentry will will claim for the book of Revelation is about 64 to 65 so we're talking only about a handful of years before the destruction of uh, Israel and Jerusalem so That brings us then to, and this, I try to hit these points quickly here.
2: You mean we get the charts out of your car? Yeah, we
0: can. We can have the charts up here. I mean, yeah, that might be a little helpful. Um, is Aggie Ministries. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but we see here the uh, another character. He's the great harlot. The great harlot. Now, who is the great harlot? I think I found this actually to be the most interesting part because his claim is that if we return to Revelation 17 we see this sometimes called the great prostitute the great harlot this person who is called the great Babylon who entices people to come and uh, commit sin with her and who is this person that's being spoken of well there are those that have speculated that because it's Babylon, that could be talking about Rome, but Gentry draws the connection between her and Jerusalem. And why do I find this so fascinating? Because who is the bride of Christ in Revelation? It is the New Jerusalem, and so this then kind of p- puts this theme forward: of here is the harlot, and here is the bride. There seems to be a literary parallel here. Um, and who is, is the, the, the New Jerusalem that's being spoken of? Who is the Bride of Christ? Well, we know from the entirety of the New Testament, the Church is the Bride of Christ. And, and then this seems, if, if this is speaking of judgment coming to Jerusalem, well, this would line up quite nicely uh, with, uh, th- this, is, this is Jerusalem. Look at what Jerusalem has, has done. Look what Jerusalem should have done, right? Th- this, uh, this idea of, of a harlot, of someone who, is, uh, who had uh, marriage uh, with, God, right? Which is some language that is used in the Old Testament prophets as well. Uh, the prophets that refer to Israel being my bride, God says, but then also language later as he says, but you have played the harlot, you have played the prostitute as you've gone and uh, toward other gods. Um, and so this all seems to be lining up that Israel uh, has the, the prophecies, has the knowledge of who God is and what they ought to do. And yet they have played the harlot. They have gone toward other gods. They have gone away from from God and his uh, revelation. And now they have done that in the ultimate sense by rejecting the son of God who came to them, whom they should have known. Um, And so this really, uh, and I'll I'll talk about this in a second, this really does bring into view the theme that Gentry has for the book of Revelation, which is that Revelation is a great divorce. Between God and the nation of Israel that rejected him, um, and that him opening up the seven seals, opening up the scroll is a bill of divorce. It is a this is a legal drama of him showing uh, the the judgment that's going to come because of the the covenant breaking of the people and the nation of Israel. But I do want to mention before we jump into that, let's move to second Thessalonians chapter two. And there is the man of lawlessness, a man of lawlessness. Now, many find this to be kind of the ace card against postmillennial thinking because it seems to be talking about uh, this great calamity that is coming. everything's going toward this uh, this terrible fate for the church, and there is this man of law- lawlessness. But who does Gentry argue that the man of lawlessness uh, mentioned here in Second Thessalonians uh, two is? Well, he actually draws this parallel. He says this is the first beast. This is Nero. And why does he say that this is Nero? He actually makes some some interest some very interesting arguments. He really dives into the Greek. And if you dive if you read his passage there, he really dissects this this uh, short passage here in Second Thessalonians. But he says that if you go to verse six, he says that and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time which this is a very interesting argument so when second this a we see that it's something current right something current going on he is being restrained now so this kind of throws out the argument that he's speaking of something in the future um the person he's speaking of is alive and well at the time that uh, paul is writing now the first argument that you would think well 2 Thessalonians, if you knew when it was written, it was written before Nero comes into power. Nero's not actually the emperor yet. He's alive, um, but Claudius is the emperor now. So This is a very interesting argument that he makes. He says, what is the Latin word for restraining? It is Claudere, which is where Claudius comes from. The word and the name Claudius comes from. And he says, well, Claudius is emperor when... Paul is writing. He is the one who is restraining. He and in restraining actually makes sense for what he is his his actions as emperor because at this time though the Jews wanted to persecute all the time and the Thessalonians would have known this well. If You read Acts. You know the Thessalonians were so incensed with the Christians that when Paul went on to the next city they chased him right. They kept going after him. And so the Thessalonians would have known this well but what restrained the Jews It was imperial law they didn't have the power to just kill people willy-nilly the romans had exclusive rights to killing people and so this stopped the uh, rampaging jews in different towns throughout asia minor all the time like this we see this even paul cites this all the time when he says i'm a roman citizen and then the, the governor says oh wait you're a roman citizen well we can't do what these people are keen on doing then um and so this this happens again and again and so the restraining power coming from the imperial power of rome where claudius is ruling And he's restraining the person who's going to come next nero at this time in history is a Kind of a higher up in the city of rome and what is he doing at this time? He and his mother are conniving to kill claudius and within a few years of the writing of this book, he'll do exactly that Um, his mother will be able to put some poison into Claudius' drink and he will die and then Nero will ascend to the throne. So that is how how, how Gentry kind of views uh, the, and he has a much more complicated uh, argument as well. I mean, he really dives through each part of this passage here. I mean, I would encourage you to read, but we sadly do not have the time. And so then that brings us to the next chapter which is the eschatological apocalypse as it is referred to and I'll briefly just walk us through why Gentry has this view that he does and I already mentioned it briefly um, in the the discussion about the harlot that this is a book that is it is a covenantal judgment against the one who should have been the bride of God, right? The one who is referred to time and again in the prophets as the bride of God, that is the nation and the people of Israel. And yet, there is a judgment that is coming. So this actually lines up very nicely with the way the prophets talk, right? The prophets, uh, if you uh, have heard uh, reformed teachers talk about the prophets of old, what are they always doing? They are bringing a covenantal lawsuit, right? There is a covenant that God has with his people and the prophets come forward and say, these were the stipulations. This is what you were to do. It was promised that if you did not do these things, then what would happen? All these curses would happen. The land would vomit you up. You would go into exile, and lo and behold, that's exactly what happened, right? And so he says, "This is this is in a similar vein um, to the prophets as well. That John is coming as the prophet here. Uh, the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, is coming as the as the prophet here, and he first turns to the churches and he says to the churches he he gives them uh some exhortations he gives them some rebuke right he says some of them they need to correct their ways but then he says you are being persecuted you will be persecuted but do not worry for this is a preparation of a coming covenantal judgment upon those who are persecuting you and he pulls back the the clouds as it were and so the church can look up And they see oh who is that person that is sitting on the throne oh it is the lamb the lamb of god and what is he holding he's holding a scroll and what is that scroll this scroll is going to uh, show becoming judgment that would come of course in the the next few years after the writing of this book and so then it unfolds as this drama of what is this what is this legal drama like as the, the the lamb brings forward his uh, his complaint against Israel, and of course he is the Lamb of God, he is perfect, he is vindicated, and therefore his complaint is heard, and there is vindication um, against those that the, the Lamb is, is judging. And so then, we can dive into, um, if we had the time, we would spend a lot more time on this, but we would dive into what is normally the, one of the first things we think about with Revelation, which is the seven seals because the, lo- the lamb has the scroll and then we see the seven seals. And Each time a seal is broken, we see part of the drama unfold of this judgment that is coming. And so I'll briefly hit uh, these seals. The first seal is a white horse and he has a, a long distance weapon as uh, as Gentry points out. And he says this is this white horse, this first, the, the horse coming after the first seal is broken, it pictures the Roman army victoriously fighting its way to Jerusalem. The second seal is broken, and we see a red horse with a shorter weapon. And this picture is the Roman army, uh, this, or this picture is the eruption of the Jewish civil war that happened during this great Jewish war. There was an outbreak of civil war, and this passage speaks of a peace that was lost. And what is this well-known piece? Uh, he, he, he claims it is probably speaking of the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana is that there was peace inside the borders of the Roman Empire for hundreds of years. Since the times of Caesar Augustus, uh, there had been a Pax Romana. All the fighting was done outside the borders of Rome. And so the Jewish Civil War and the Jewish War in general would mark the first major conflict within her borders. Uh, and so then the Pax Romana is, is broken. The third seal is broken and we see a black horse with scales. And he draws this parallel to the way in which Ezekiel and other prophets speak um, using the color black to denote famine. And we know there was great famine throughout all the lands of Israel during the war. Uh, the fourth seal is broken and the, uh, the pale horse named Death comes forward. Um, he claims that this is, we know that a quarter of people uh, were killed and he lines this up with the account that josephus speaks of around a quarter of the population being destroyed through famine and through the war um and so he says this is this was what the what death is referring to the pale horse named death the fifth seal breaks open and we see another we kind of the camera moves and we move back up to heaven and we see that the saints that the saints who have been martyred are waiting there uh to be vindicated And the angel of the Lord says that you will wait but a little while and you will indeed be vindicated. Um, Kind of the looking forward what's to come. And then the sixth seal is broken and we see these great cataclysmic events, right? Uh, Stars begin to fall. Earthquakes begin to happen. And people go run into the the hills and they begin to to ask the, the mountains to fall upon them as they are going into hiding. And what's going on here? Well, he draws a parallel here to... Josephus speaking of all of the rulers of Jerusalem and Israel actually running to find underground caves to hide from the Romans um, as the Romans were coming into Judea. We then move to 144,000, which Ty, our math major, can tell us what's the importance of the number 144,000. What is 144? What's the significance of that number? It's 12 squared it's
1: yeah it's exactly
0: it's uh the the culmination of 12 right 12 is an important number throughout scripture uh, referring to the 12 tribes and it mentions that i'm the one hundred forty-four thousand, the 12 tribes so what is this referring to these are the jews that repented before uh the judgment was coming these are the ones that were converted by the likes of peter and james and john uh the early church there in israel Um, And God is promising these will be protected those that are Christians uh, those that uh, are part of the church within Israel during this time will be protected and indeed this does come to pass as Josephus then speaks of the Christians fleeing Jerusalem and fleeing Israel before all of this actually occurs and the church is not utterly destroyed um, there within the borders of Israel. And then we get to Revelation 10 and the, the angel says there shall be no more delay. And then we see everything coming to pass. The beasts come. We see the beasts. Uh, and then we see the harlots. We see Babylon. The 144,000 indeed are protected and Jerusalem being destroyed. And then how does this all culminate in the end? Then there is a new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. And there we see the saints ruling along with Christ. Ruling from the new jerusalem the devil is bound after all of this occurs And of course we we've talked about how that Pictures the the nations now being unbound that satan cannot bind them And he draws parallel back to um to christ speaking and the strong man being bound How can we plunder the strong man's house unless the strong man indeed is bound he makes this connection there And then we see the rain in New Jerusalem. So he says the post-millennial thinking, the end times of the post-millennial and post-millennial thinking as found in Revelation really is found in those last three chapters um, instead of the whole thing being something that we look forward to. And those last three chapters really are what is being highlighted here. And then, of course, we see things from the future in Daniel and other places as well. All this coming together. And so he his, his claim really is that we, we shouldn't be, though Revelation is Uh, This great drama this great legal drama um, People focus on that as though This is the entirety of the picture of the end times And He says no well a We see so much of what has happened From a relation but B we should be Taking into account everything that we see From scripture from Genesis through Revelation um, In our our Thinking about what the end times is going to be Like and what's coming Um, So I will Stop there Because we have six minutes On the clock Um And I will open the floor for questions.
2: I just want to say, well done. You squeezed a lot there (laughs) in the last 15 minutes. I'm like, okay. uh, I've never seen that done before. (laughs) Without a chart to be seen. (laughs) You didn't have to point to anything on it. Didn't even go over Magog and Fading (laughs) Movement. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, don't leave the floor open, guys. You know, i fill it. I was going to ask earlier.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: when, he, when he mentions the number of these, is he trying to encode for them? Is he trying to write it in a in crypt, uh, cryptic way so that the letter is. When, if it's found oh, out, it's not immediately.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so that's a big so where is John when he's writing Revelation
1: yes so mm-hmm. oh, sorry.
0: yeah the island of yeah exactly he's being jailed he's imprisoned or exiled at the very least uh, as an island as a natural prison um, and he's being kept there so any letters that he gets off the island any books that he writes uh, do you think it's going to be screened it gets off <clears> that yes of course patmos is where people are exiled so there are probably traitors and plenty there people well, that would not be the antichrist <laughs> Why <am I> dying? <laughs> <laughs> what no when Revelation is being written he is yes yeah when second thessalonians is written he was not okay. yes yeah. he is ruling currently yeah when revelation is being being written mm-hmm. unless you what <laughs> 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 I was going to say, unless you take the, so, the, so liberals who, who interpret this think that it was written much later. Why do they think it was much later? Because they think it's so obvious that it's speaking to Nero, and if Nero is the one that's going to do all these things and then he's going to die, how could John know that he's going to die unless he already died, and therefore it must have been written after Nero died? They gotta shoot on it. And so that's the, both the postmills and the liberals believe it's talking about Nero. But we just believe it's talking about it before it happens because it's a prophecy. But that's that's always a liberal. If you look at a liberal, anytime they, they talk about prophecy, if the prophecy is prophesying something that actually happened, therefore they know it's written after the event occurred. Because they don't have any room for a legitimate prophecy. Any other questions? We've got three minutes left.
2: So it goes back, I believe I mentioned this at the beginning of the study, Mm -hmm. is, um, because it can get real muddy, right? And you, you can see why even learned people just throw their hands up and go, it's too much, I'm just going to follow Christ and let this all work out. But, you can't take that attitude towards it because it's important to know we don't need fear. Right. We don't need to think that oh, this is going to happen, it's a relief and a blessing to think the majority of this happened in 70 AD. The Mm -hmm. majority of this has happened already. And now we take that. So so my question to you is, Caleb, so we're learning all this. It all lines up. Mm -hmm. 666, the beast, the Antichrist, um, the return of Christ, all these things. What should we take as Christians with this knowledge? -hmm. What should we do moving forward?
0: I think that the most important thing is that when we look at Revelation and why John's writing it, he's writing it to be a comfort to the church. And this should be a comfort to us. Because when we look at those early Christians being persecuted by the Jews first and then by the Romans second, and then John coming along and saying, don't worry, God is stronger than herod and god is stronger than nero um, god is in control all those that persecute my church will be judged he says and that does not justify to herod and that does not justify to nero now we don't have a specific prophecy of how things are going to go down in the modern day as far as that judgment but which should give us great comfort if our if we were living in communist China or the USSR or something and we were being persecuted, we should say, well, that God who protected his church during the persecutions then is also my God. He is also the one who is protecting me. And no, I don't know that this is, this is not uh, going to mean that everything's going to end now and I should rejoice because Christ is going to come tomorrow. We don't know that. We can never know that. All, all generations have speculated that. But we should have great comfort in knowing that the same God who protected those hundred and forty-four thousand, which of course is a we didn't talk about that's a that twelve by twelve is a a, a symbolic number, but the same one that that protected them then will protect us now. Um, whether that means He protects us physically, which He does quite often, or that He has protected and preserved our souls, even then when we do die, um, we will be with Him in heaven and that we will be there with him whenever he comes and the new earth is, is inaugurated and we see the new heavens and the new earth so um should so give us great hope but this is the same god who is in control of all history and he's bringing it all toward uh, a happy end and to be very comforting
2: and just in the new testament as it tells us we have a cloud of witness of all the prophets of old mm-hmm. speaking to the early church we on this side in this point in time in history mm-hmm. we have a cloud of witness of church history
0: right 2000 years we've
2: seen the expansion of church go we've se- we can read about Christendom all mm-hmm. throughout Europe expanding throughout the globe and where we are here it should inspire us mm-hmm. that we are a part of his church and ever expanding I know we open the church doors in its clown world out there right now mm-hmm. but we are a part of Christendom expanding
0: Right, and it's continuing to expand. And we will continue to see that as we, as we talked about that there's so much of this post-millennial thinking like that, not just in Revelation, but in the entirety of, of the scriptures as the waters go out from the temple, as uh, the kingdom expands, as each one of Christ's enemies is being put under his feet, and that last one being death. And so to give us great, great hope in the way that we live our lives as Christians. All right. Well, it's a minute after the hour. So, Will, can you pray for us as we depart?
1: Yes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Revelation, the rest of your word, which points us to what you have done and where we you know you are taking your church. We thank you for your faithfulness, and your covenant dealings with your people. We thank you that even in our faithlessness, you are faithful to keep your promise to guide your church, to keep them, to protect them, to lead them. We know that we see what you have brought your church through. Um, we know that we are comforted uh, through just the history of what you have done. And through the faith you've given us, we ask that you continue to embolden us to take comfort, as we move forward as your church victorious, we thank you that we know we are going to a skills at a happy end. Um, may we go forward with joy, um, with victorious spirits, and worshiping along the way as we know that you are guiding us to a good end. All this to the praise your glorious name. Amen. <laughs>